Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we listen to the other side. Each episode, we listen to the story of someone who has lived as a non-believer and then became a Christian, someone who understands from the inside what each of those worlds are like. One of the most fascinating discoveries in my research with over 50 former atheists was the role that some kind of religious or mystical experience played in their conversion to Christianity. Dreams, visions, encounters with Jesus Christ, encounters with Satan and dark spirituality, extraordinary providential circumstances, these all reshaped their understanding of the possible reality that there was something more, something real beyond this universe. Some of these experiences were invited in a way after someone had opened themselves up, had prayed or challenged God or even Satan to show up. Some of these otherworldly experiences were not invited but palpably encountered nonetheless. So sobering were they that it caused them to change their minds and even their lives dramatically reorienting themselves to a new understanding of reality as something more than they once thought possible. That is the story that we will hear today from our guest. As a rational, intellectual university professor, she admittedly, she didn't know what she was looking for. As someone who was spiritual but not religious, she definitely wasn't looking for the Judeo-Christian God. But she experienced an unexpected, powerful, and vivid dream and suddenly found herself profoundly believing in Jesus Christ. She came to see that reality was much more than she realized, much more than merely grounded in this world. Forgiveness and peace were found in the real person of Jesus Christ. It changed everything for her. Dr. Mary Poplin is now a university professor and strong advocate of the Christian worldview. I hope you'll listen in to hear her compelling journey from non-belief to belief. Welcome to the Sidebeat Podcast, Mary. It's so great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. As we're getting started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your academic background, and maybe perhaps where you live? Okay. Uh, well, I started as a school teacher, uh, and I taught for a few years, and then I went to the University of Texas to graduate school, and then I became a professor. I spent three years at the University of Kansas, long time ago, but I've been at Claremont Graduate University as a professor since 1981, uh, I think. A long time. I'm old. <laughs> oh, no. And that's, and that's in Claremont, California. It's in the Los Angeles area where I live. And then I occasionally come back to my hometown where my sisters live. And that's where I am right now because of the virus. So I'm teaching, we're all teaching online anyway. And so I'm teaching from here in Texas. What is your focus of, of study or your specialty? Started out in special education. And then I went to teacher education largely. And now I would say it's, um, it's, it's about, it's, my research is on teachers. Actually, I love to study highly effective teachers in the most troubled schools. So that's what I study. 
and I've um, worked with my students. Done, we've done a, a piece of research and, and a book on that. And my second thing is that I love to study Judeo-Christian thought and how it impacts different fields. And so I, wrote, I did a book on um, the four major worldviews, trying to explain what uh, secular humanism and materialism and pantheism were as related to Christianity. And what is the name of that book? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I believe it is is reality secular. Okay. Yes. Uh -huh. yes. Yeah. It's an excellent <laughs> book. I must I must say I read that several years ago and I took that enjoyed it. I took that line from a Dallas Willard book, actually. Okay. Steal it. He said I could have anything. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, Dallas Willard was a, a pretty oh. extraordinary man. A very amazing man. Yeah. So you're someone who obviously is a thinker, someone who's um thought deeply about issues of worldview of life of perspective and but the christian worldview and thinking about it your life in that terms in those terms certainly wasn't where you started so <laughs> let's back up now and and let's go early in your life and tell me about where you grew up was there any concept of god in your home your family your friends among your friends or community uh -huh. I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas, and my dad was, uh, I mean, my mother was too, but my dad in very specifically was a Christian. And so he took us to Sunday school every Sunday, and uh, we usually went to church. We went to a Methodist church. I would say that I came away from that church not exactly knowing. I think I had one Sunday school teacher who was pretty on target about who Jesus was, but the Methodist church was already uh, kind of uh, leaning towards secular humanism, really. And um, so when I left that experience, um, then and when I got into graduate school, I really did leave Christianity for a long time. So, so when, you, uh, when you grew up, you had, I guess you could say, a tacit knowledge of God. You went to church. Uh, it was in your culture, so to speak. But... I, I'm taking from what you're saying that you didn't really take on a belief personally of that of, that God exists or that Jesus is real or or well he may have been historically real but there really wasn't much to it for you in your life is, you, is that I don't even know if I thought that deeply I just um, I I wasn't thinking about rejecting it or thinking about accepting it uh, it just seemed like it was part of the culture in a way and i had done that by going to sunday school <laughs> and church and i did know my dad was different my dad uh we all remember all four girls uh of his we remember seeing him read the bible at night before he went to bed you know just on the side of his bed he always had his bible open before he'd go to sleep before he'd go, go into bed so um so I knew that, all of that. And um, I guess I thought Christians were people who tried to live better, maybe. Which mm. so. is something that provided a good moral construct for the family, for the way their way of life, their living, that sort of thing. I know, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it sounds like it just wasn't particularly relevant to you. 
No, I didn't dislike it, and nor did I uh, adopt it. Mm. Mm. I remember a couple of times feeling uh, close to God in church as a child, but not very many. Mm. Okay. So obviously it sounds like there was somewhat of a change when you went to university, your way of thinking about God or Christianity or religion generally. Uh, Why don't you talk about that? Well, when I got to graduate school, I pretty much rejected it. I I knew that the kinds of things, I, I knew enough to know that the kinds of things I wanted to do were not, would not be validated by a Christian uh, worldview or Christian beliefs. And so uh, I rejected it really out of desire, of other desires. So other desires kind of replaced any interest I had in Christianity. And I, I didn't um, actually become what, uh, so, I mean, some people become atheists, right? But they're more thoughtful about it, I think. <laughs> I think. I became what I'd call spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. And there's a large group of people in America and around the world, especially in the Western world, um, who believe that they're spiritual, which is the way that I wanted to say, and I think they also wanted to say, I'm a good person, but I'm not religious. So yeah, I can be good without God. And so that's what I became. So I was vaguely spiritual, which meant that I would um, sometimes get, uh, I'd go to things that were more like pantheist things, you know, um, sessions on being spiritual. Uh, I think I tried, what, which did I, I tried a couple of different sort of uh, pantheistic things. Um, for a while, I went with a friend to some Buddhist uh, no, actually, it was Hindu uh, meditation practice. Um, so, I, you know, new age kinds of things. That's really what I was doing. So why were you pursuing those kind of uh, spiritual pursuits? I mean, was there something in your life that you just wanted more or, or why, why that? I think because I wanted to... Um, I wanted to in some way suggest that I was a good person, right? Even though I was doing things that for a good Christian, it would not have been okay. Does that make sense? So, so it gave you religion without the moral requirements associated with a, a Judeo-Christian God. Right. No moral requirements. Right. So that was a comfortable place to be, I guess, for a while. Yeah. Yes, because you... You know, it's kind of like um, you just sort of thought that you were good and light and airy and, you know, wonderful and all those things. Okay. Even really knew better. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this was in graduate school and beyond, maybe into young adulthood. Yes. Uh-huh. How long did you? I went to California. I would get involved in sort of spiritual activities that were not Christian. Feminist spirituality, those kind of things. You find that as intellectually satisfying or existentially satisfying? I don't know if it was satisfying. Um, There was something, I guess, in me that wanted to say I was spiritual, right? Right, right. So... So to walk us farther along your journey, what, what started happening in your life next or what, what started uh, causing you to question that or change that? Well, 
to tell you the truth, I, uh, I didn't really question it until I had a, a particular dream. I, I, when I say I didn't question it, I don't mean that I knew it was working, <laughs> right? I don't know. Uh, okay, in retrospect, I thought I was good, as good as anybody else, right? Even though I was doing things that everybody else was doing. And, um, and so I, I kept trying to call myself good, right? But, um, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that wasn't working because I, was very, I also experienced a lot of depression. So I was on antidepressants a lot um, after I got to my after I got to my job, I was using antidepressants a great deal. And, uh, and so, you know, something was wrong. I don't know that I uh, worded it that way. I might have thought, well, I just have this little chemical imbalance. And so, you know, I, these drugs help me. Um, so then I, I got tenure, I think it was 1991 or 92. And that happened in the uh, probably May. May, that's usually when you find out those things. And, um, and then in November, okay, so I was married at the time. My husband was into even weirder things, really. And he and a friend had gone for Thanksgiving to uh, Hawaii, I think, or somewhere. I don't know. And, um, and things were not going that well in our marriage either. I, I think I knew he, had, he was with other people. and. Um, so I you know, spent Thanksgiving alone and then I had a dream and th at Thanksgiving and that dream was really the turning point. So it was the only time I, you know, I have dreams all the time, but you know, they don't usually make sense, right? You know how they are. <laughs> like, there's a bubble gum and something else in there or something. But, um, but this dream, I knew, I remembered every single detail and in the dream, uh, there was there was a part of the dream in color, but I was not in the part that was in color, and I had never dreamed in color. So I was in a long line of people, and we were all dressed in kind of gray robes to, to our feet, to our fingertips. So we're kind of like Buddhist looking, and we're in a line, and we're not a uh, breaking line. We're not talking to each other. We're just marching straight ahead. But the odd thing is that we were not on a plane that you could see we were it was like we were suspended in a night sky so here we are walking towards something no one knew what it was and I didn't know where I was going and so I kind of leaned out to my left and looked and it looked like the line sort of snaked around and disappeared and then I thought well I must be at the back of the line so I looked around to my right and it looked as though that line that line didn't end either and then all of a sudden I noticed that we were going to pass by something on the right and there was a kind of yellowish tinted light coming out from that, from where we were going on the right and on the right of us. And when I got to it, it was um, a live version. The best way to describe it is it was a live version of Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the last supper. <laughs> so, so there's these disciples sitting in disciple-like robes and they're in color and they're eating. They're, they're at this table and they're eating. 
and they're talking to each other and they're not paying really us any attention whatsoever. And then all of a sudden I realized that even though this looked a lot like the last supper, Jesus was not there. So there was a seat kind of in the middle that was empty. And then I looked up ahead and we were all, this was a reception line and we were all going to pass by Jesus. And when I got to uh, Jesus and I looked at him, I knew who he was. And all of a sudden I also knew who I was. And I was deeply embarrassed. I mean, I felt like I was just, you know, filled with sin and rottenness and all that. And so I couldn't look at Jesus anymore. And I fell down at his feet and I started to cry. And in the dream, then Jesus leans over and puts his hands on my shoulders. And when he touched me, I felt perfect peace. I mean, I don't know how to describe this except that. You feel so peaceful, you feel almost like you're not, like you don't have a heavy body attached to you. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than that. And, um, and then I woke up. And when I woke up, the dream was so well connected. That is, there weren't any holes in it. It wasn't a mishmash of different things like most dreams are. It was very clear. And uh, when I woke up, I knew something had changed and I needed to do something. And, um, and so what did I do after that? I, I, I started to pursue, oh, then I had a sabbatical coming up and I moved from California to Austin. At that time I had a little house there where I had gone to graduate school and I, I began to stay there and I began to pursue people who were in churches. And I told someone who was probably, I think they were in, involved in Campus Crusade. They knew about my conversion and they started telling people and then other people would come to me. And, um, and that's how I kind of began to know uh, what Christianity was. And um, so just to be clear, you just characterized that dream as a moment of conversion. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Um, yes, I think that's what I would say, because it was not something that could be shaken off, right? It was there in me now. And, uh, and it became, you know, I had always wanted to be spiritual, right? <laughs> so, um, but it became overarching now I didn't know anything really about Jesus right I mean I really didn't know even though I'd gone to church and stuff um, I really didn't know much so I started pursuing people and they started pursuing me in Austin and uh, they were Christians they would take me to places like one one woman I had met and within a couple hours she invited me to room with her at a woman's retreat I mean that's pretty radical <laughs> she didn't know me at all so, uh, but I went to the retreat and the first thing I started to notice that was so obvious, these were not professors or, you know, particularly in my field, in fact, none of them I think were in my field, but the first thing I began to notice is that they lived their life differently. They lived their life differently. They looked healthier. They looked happier. Um, they were clear minded um, they weren't confused. They weren't searching for something that they didn't have. Um, 
they were they were still pursuing growing in Christ, but but um, but they weren't like I had been. Mm. There was a contentment associated with what they had found, I guess. Right. And we're just growing in that. Yeah. So then. Um, Did you start reading the Bible to get become informed about the person of Jesus or. I started reading. The Bible was really key for me. So, you know, as an academic, right, you look for the book. <laughs> yeah. Not only did I read the Bible, I, I ended up reading it over and over, and I would go to these retreats. There were some retreats at monasteries. So one of the kind of unique features of my conversion is that uh, Catholics helped me, Protestants helped me, even a couple of Orthodox people helped me, um, and there were Protestants of every kind, you know, from charismatic Protestants to, you know, very serious kind of Baptist Protestants. Um, so... I did begin to read the Bible and I began to love the New Testament. In fact, someone had advised me to do this. But I, but when I started reading it, I read the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the New Testament first. And, um, and, I, and this person asked me once, this guy asked me, well, what do you think of, the, of your reading? You know, how's the reading going? And I said, well, I, I, like, I love the Proverbs. I like the New Testament and the Psalms, they're okay. And he said, so, so you don't particularly like the Psalms? And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't particularly like the Psalms. And then he said to me a very important question, especially the way he phrased it. He said to me, do you know why you dislike the Psalms? And I said immediately, I think, yeah, because in the Psalms, you, you know, there's that one where it says, dash their children on rocks, right? There's a lot of violence in the Psalms. And he just nodded. He didn't say a single word other than that. But it really opened up to me, okay, so why do I hate the Psalms, right? Or why do I not like the Psalms? And all of a sudden, I think it was that very night after I had had dinner with this person who was significant in San Diego to, in helping me. And I was reading the Psalms that night, and I got to 137, the Psalm that dashes children on rocks. <laughs> and, um, and when I read it this time, I saw that the Psalms were about good and evil. And those instances were, were instances of evil. And evil was clearly still in charge of my life. And, uh, and so I, that's how I kind of broke through that. Uh, barrier. And then I began reading everything, the Old Testament, all the way through. I just kept rereading. And then I decided that I went to a, a monastery for a retreat that was, I think, about a week long. And the abbot who was in charge of it would tell us every night what scriptures he was going to use the next morning. And so he told us, and I went to my room, and I was looking up the scripture. I was so tired. I I couldn't concentrate, so I thought, okay, I'll write it in my little notebook. I'll write them, copy them in my notebook, and then in the morning I'll look at them at breakfast. And so as I copied them, though, I saw how much more I saw in the scriptures when I was writing it, when I was just copying it. So that led me to copy the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the New Testament, uh, ultimately, during that, um, that time. 
We're going to take a break for a moment from our story so that I can tell you about the C.S. Lewis Institute Fellows Program. This program is a 12-month discipleship course that focuses on monthly themes related to theology, spiritual formation, and apologetics. Through the structure of a strong curriculum, like-minded community, and a one-on-one mentorship, our fellows encounter a life-changing experience that develops them to grow deeper in their faith as disciples of Christ. The C.S. Lewis Institute is now accepting applications for this fellows program. It is offered in 15 different cities and is for Christians who are seeking to broaden their Christian education and deepen their personal faith. To learn more and to find out if you live in a city where the fellows program is offered, please visit www.cslewisinstitute.org. Now we'll return to our story. Wow. So I, so you were really getting into to the Bible, the scripture, what it meant for you. I'm curious, as you were reading the Bible, particularly the, the Gospels and the stories of Christ and, and learning who he was, did reading the Bible and Jesus and the Gospels help give you an understanding of what had happened to you in your dreams? Did it like Jesus, the one who who forgives those who are seemingly and un, are feel unforgivable, the one who is the author of peace? You know, those things that you experience kind of did they come to reality in, in scripture for you? Well, yes, I don't think I was thinking about it consciously like you just stated it. I think it was happening. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was happening. Um, and, um, you know, it's one thing to know, to, to know what the scripture says. It's another thing to then begin to try to live it. Okay. So, so November was the dream. And then, um, and then I had a couple of other kind of experiences later in January. So in January, my mother who grew up in North Carolina, I grew up in Texas wanted to go back and visit her family or what was left of her family and to visit friends there. And um, so I, I took her back and my mother had grown up in a, a very tiny Methodist church that was probably about as nominal, nominally teaching as the one I was in. And, um, and she wanted to go to church, I think largely because she knew that's where her, she'd see her friends. And so uh, I took her there, and I remember sitting through the sermon, and it was an older uh, kind of country preacher, and I was thinking, well, you know, it's okay, because now I'm studying the Bible. (laughs) I've had this dream, so this is all right. And I didn't pay much attention to his sermon, but it happened, it was the first day, the first Sunday in January, which means they were going to have communion. Okay, so um, I'm at the back of this church. It couldn't have held more than 100 people, I'm sure. But uh, they were going to go up one row at a time. So they'd go up and fill up the, um, the area around the altar, and they'd receive communion, and they'd come back to their chairs, and then the next group would go, right? But we were in the back, and I thought it would never happen because when he talked about the, taking the bread, taking Christ into your body and giving your life to him 
it just came over me that I had to have that communion. And it was like, it felt like it was forever before I got there. But I finally got there and I knelt down and I took the, um, the communion elements and I didn't listen to a thing he said. I just looked at them and I said, if you are real, please come and get me. I didn't say this out loud. And I said it like three times. If you're real, please come and get me. Please come and get me. And I, when I took the elements, I felt the same peace I had felt in that dream when, I, when Jesus had touched me. Exactly the same peace. So much so that I thought maybe if I stood up, I wouldn't stay on the ground. That's how light I felt. But I, I did stay on the ground, thank goodness. <laughs> I got back to my chair and uh, or my pew, and and that I think is the moment that I really had the what you might call a conversion moment. Because now now I'm making that commitment. Yes, it was a conscious decision that, and somehow it wasn't just made for you in a sense. It was something where you actually gave your life in return. Yes. Sounds very, very, very powerful, like a very powerful moment. Yeah, it was. It was. And how long, how long ago was that? Long time ago, because that would have been the January of, I think, 93, maybe. Okay. 92. So it sounds like you're I think the dream is extraordinary that it would be so powerful that you would come out changed. And then you had, you read the scripture where you were surrounded by Christians. You had uh, that moment of conversion. I can imagine someone listening who may be rather skeptical, you know, thinking, but, but she's an intellectual. How does she know it's true? You know, I know we can know things are experientially true, but how does she know it's intellectually true? You know, how does she know she's not, just convincing herself of something. Um, and I know as an academic, okay, that's not the way you roll in a sense that, that things have to be in a sense, intellectually credible or viable before you'll fully embrace it. I would imagine on some level and maybe, um, can you explain how that became a holistic part of your journey? Um, the intellectual aspect of, of everything else that you were experiencing and learning? Well, to be honest, I think that's still my uh, calling, right? To continue to understand that and to be able to relate it to intellectuals, right? So the intellectual piece is if you really begin to study scripture, you will see that there's not a single issue we argue about today that's not in scripture, for example. And this is kind of, this is way uh, jumping ahead to where I am now. Okay, I just want to make that clear. I didn't know this back then. So, but I did have this draw to scripture. So, for example, when we talk about race, well, race is talked about all the time in the Bible, right? Um, all of these things. Justice is always talked about in the Bible. Never, the word social justice never appears. And the word justice is the same word in the Bible, in the Hebrew, as righteousness. So there is a clear uh, message in the Bible that you cannot, that justice and righteousness have to be together. You, you don't have justice without righteousness and you don't have righteousness without justice. And, um, and so there, and there's lots of, you know, people talk about women 
in the Bible, I mean, you look at any other religion, there's no religion that has as many women in it. I mean, there's tons of women, right? And, uh, and, and in, in Jesus's genealogy, which is very unusual, because it lists five women, most genealogies do not list any women. Um, and those, of those five women, four of them are actually not Jewish. So here we have the issue of culture and race. They're not Jewish at all. Bathsheba's not Jewish. Tamar's not Jewish. You know, so um, Bathsheba's not Jewish. Uh, so these, there are, there are these intellectual principles that are embedded in the Bible. And we just haven't paid much attention to them. I mean, even Martin, you know, Martin Luther King was one of the best at that, especially in terms of race and justice and things like that. So when he says, um, he, he basically does 1 Corinthians 12 uh, by saying, uh, he says, the strange thing is that for me to be who I have to be, you have to be who you have to be. And for you to be fully who you're supposed to be, I have to be who I'm supposed to be. And he, then he says, that's the strange way that God's um, world is made. And that's just a summary of 1 Corinthians 12, right, about the body. You know, the piece, part of the body that you actually think is least usable, useful, is actually the most important one. So, um, so all, so, so now, when I look at intellectually, I have to find ways to insert Christian wisdom into what we're teaching, which is not Christian wisdom at all. So we usually end up teaching left and right. So we either go too far to the left or too far to the right. When you lose uh, something as large and as um, monumental and important and true as Christianity in the intellectual world, you lose the moral plumb line. Mm -hmm. So there is a moral plumb line in Christianity. It's not that, you know, left and right is talked about all the time in the Bible. I forget how many times. It seems like it's like, I don't know, 24 or 45 times. And what it says is, uh, do not turn to your left or to your right. Over and over it says that in the Bible. That's all we do in the university almost. You know, right now it's left, used to be right. Uh, but once, we, you know, all universities came out of Christendom. They started out of monasteries to, be, to begin with. There wasn't even a university in the United States until Johns Hopkins in 1899 that did not claim itself to be Christian. So, and many, many universities still have that claim even though they don't uh, particularly uh, use Christian doctrine in their teaching. Because I think now people have just lost track of it. Hmm. But the scripture still has all this wisdom in it for all these different issues, uh, but we're not using them. So that's where my conversion took me, you know. That's why I, I believe I had to, I, I spent so much time in the Bible. I'm actually rewriting the Psalms because <laughs> we're in this weird place in the world right now, and, um, and, it, and it seems to help to just write them, you know, just remember. Um, and to see things in them that you might not have seen in other, when you were living other conditions. So, Yes. And I suppose that there was something in you again, in uh, your intellectual curiosity and drive 
in your work that compares different worldviews um, that you wanted to perhaps, I mean, why did you do that kind of comparative study even after you became a Christian? Um, I think because I've, I've, when I see Christians in the university, I see that they're like I was, you know, how do you relate this? I still remember uh, when I came back from Calcutta speaking at a woman's retreat about Mother Teresa. It was not a retreat. It was a woman's uh, education leadership conference. It was a breakfast at a leadership conference, uh, which was not just all women. But um, they wanted me to tell something about Mother Teresa. So I told them some little stories. And at the end, a woman in the back stood up and she said, have you had any trouble coming back from Mother Teresa's? And when she said that, I, I obviously had had trouble. I just broke out in tears in front of this audience of 250 school administrator women. And um, I had been asking the Lord, what is this? What is this going on with me that I almost, that I start crying before I go to class? And, um, and I just blurted out. All of a sudden, I guess that's when the Holy Spirit decided to give me the answer. <laughs> so I remember I even did this with my hands. I said, you know, obviously I've had some trouble. And then they kind of calmed down too. And I said, um, okay, so I went to Mother Teresa's and I saw Christianity really lived. I, I know. I mean, we're not all called to that, but I saw it lived. And I'm, I came back to teach, and I'm still teaching exactly what I've always taught. And I don't know how to get from here to here, and I feel like a liar. Mm. And I said that, a lot of the women in the audience started to cry. Because we all feel that way, I think. If you're a strong Christian, you feel like, why, why can't I take this into my world? Why can't we talk about this in whatever place... I'm living in or working in. And that's, um, so that's one of my callings. So I do now teach a class called Judeo-Christian Thought Across the Disciplines. And it is a class that anybody from any field can take. We have these classes called transdisciplinary classes. And, um, and so sometimes Christians take it. Sometimes, I mean, there's always Christians in the class, but sometimes there's like an atheist might take it or somebody who's just not religious, never really thought of it. Maybe it just fits their schedule that, that semester, right? So, um, but it's a lovely class because the students have a lot of uh, flexibility of what they can read. And I'm, I guide them in their, their uh, in Christian reading in their discipline, but, um, and then they present it to each other. So, so it's kind of like a little intellectual feast in a way. And uh, Christianity is the core of it. Sounds wonderful. It sounds like you have, in a sense, integrated your Christianity in, into every walk or part of your life. Um, and I'm sure you've uh, hopefully found as you, when you first had your dream and you encountered these Christians, you had this sensibility of, peace and joy and purpose, perhaps contentment, that you obviously have found that sort of thing in your life. Yeah. I mean, I'm still a sinner. <laughs> we are. We all well, are. Definitely. So, you know, you those things one thing at a time, right? Right. 
I'd like to pause from our story for a moment and invite you to listen in on an important upcoming conversation. If you've ever been burdened by the devastation of human trafficking but didn't know what you could do about it, I wanted to let you know about a special online CSOS Institute event that will be held on Friday evening, May the 21st. Three internationally recognized leaders in the fight against human trafficking will share why they personally got involved in this cause, what's happening today in this battle, and how we can help bring freedom to those in bondage. Victor Boutros, Christine Buckholtz, and Ambassador John Richmond will be the speakers. Between the three of them, they have worked for the Department of Justice, the International Justice Mission, They've co-founded the Human Trafficking Institute and served at the highest levels of the U.S. government to fight the injustice of human trafficking. And each of them is also a C.S. Lewis Institute graduate fellow. There is no charge for this event, but you do need to register. Again, it is Friday evening, May 21st, beginning at 8 p.m. For more information and to register, please go to csosinstitute.org forward slash rescue. We hope to see you there. Now back to our story. So those for, for those who might be listening, if there's someone who is perhaps spiritual, not religious, maybe they don't know what they think about Christianity or where they should look, if they're curious or wanting to to think about things further, what would you say to the skeptic who might be listening to you today? Well, I think, um, okay, so <laughs> I, I think we try to push them too fast. I think we try to, th- you know, get them to the time where you say the right thing. And in fact, for a while, someone kept telling me, she kept asking me, like, what did you say when you think you became a Christian, right? And I would say, I said, please come and get me. <laughs> it just wasn't good enough for her. <laughs> okay. You didn't have them say the magic words on the magic formula? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would, I would avoid that. I would just uh, talk to them about, the, you know, their life and, uh, and just – I put them, maybe show them people who are Christian who they don't know are Christian, for example. You know, there are Christians in every field that people don't know are Christian, right? Um, I think they should just watch and, um, and then somebody that they trust, they could talk to. And uh, I would say uh, mostly get to know them. And then when they start asking you us questions, then we answer honestly, but we don't begin to push them. I think that that's like, especially for a person who's an intellectual, like, you know, like in the university, that it's never going to work that way. Um, and the other thing is to tell them times when you've been uh, changed. I mean, I always like to, to say not just, uh, you know, Christianity is mostly presented socially or um, personally, not necessarily intellectually, right? And uh, in fact, usually not intellectually. But there are things everybody 
is concerned about. Everybody has sinned. There's not a single person probably even who, who gets to five years old who doesn't have something that they uh, know they shouldn't have done, for example. And um, so I might share a time when I've used uh, 1 John 1, 9, which I think is the least, the most underrated scripture in the universe, where it says, if I sin, if I confess my sin, um, and that word always stump, people stumble on, but the word sin just means, it's an archery term. It means you missed the mark. You didn't hit the center, right? You may have missed it a little. You may have missed it a lot. So when, okay, so in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if I sin, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And that's the part no one pays any attention to. Okay? So I just sinned, and uh, I can give you an example. So I had, with my partners before all this, uh, watched uh, pornographic movies, for example. We had watched those. Even at the University of Texas, there was something called, I think, Friday Night Movies or something. And, um, and so... When I came to Christ, I never had a desire to see that again. But I could be driving down the Los Angeles freeway where you have a lot of time, and suddenly something would start flashing in my mind from one of those films, uncall unconsciously called up by me. I wasn't calling it up. And that, and that disturbed me. So I would say out loud in my car, usually I was alone, um, okay, Lord, you saw that and I saw it. And I confess that that's a sin, and I ask you to forgive me, but not just to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me from this. And I did that for about a year, and it just totally went away. I don't ever have those flashbacks, nothing. But we forget to ask to be cleansed. Mm -hmm. Getting rid of a sin that, you're, that, that has become a habit um, is not an easy thing to do, but it's certainly not going to be done by secular psychology because first they're going to rationalize that it's not really a sin everybody does it right so um christian psychology real christian psychology biblical psychology is as far from secular psychology as anything i mean i can't even imagine a field that's more disparate than the way we teach psychology you know there was a book that was famous when I was young, and you probably were too, and it was the book that everybody read about psychology, and, and it said, I'm okay, you're okay. Two lies. I'm not okay, and neither are you. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. If you want to believe it, go right ahead. <laughs> but it was exactly the opposite, and we grew up on that, and we taught our children that, and their grandchildren that, and now we have what we have. Yes. We have exactly what, what has been planted. Yes. It's just like there's no clear line between evil and good. Or evil is called good and good evil. Exactly. That's exactly the scripture, right? right. They will call good evil and evil good, and that is where we are. Yes. So. Wow, Mary, you have had quite a life, really, it sounds like just full of experience and anything Strong. from Texas to California, living spirituality in California. You know, I can't even imagine what, what that might be 
and then really coming to Christ in the midst of, I would say, a very, very unlikely culture mm -hmm. and time. And I think that that's very encouraging for us, even like you say, if you look at the culture now, it seems like a very unlikely place mm -hmm. where people can find Christ, but Christ is right in the middle waiting right. for people to find what you have found. So yeah. I really am so grateful for you coming and telling your story, especially I love the dream aspect mm -hmm. because dreams are incredibly real and powerful when they're, when they're, more than just the ordinary, that they are the extraordinary dream that you know is from God and there's no question. Um, is there anything else? Oh, go ahead. That, um, the reason that God used dreams with me is that there was no other way to reach me. There really wasn't. I mean, I had students who were praying for me who would try to talk to me and I wasn't listening. And, you know, I'd be nice just because they were students. But... Um, but there was no other way to reach me, I think. And that's why the dream. I think a lot of people who are very strong atheists have had very strong experiences and rejected them. So. I, that's probably true based upon the research that I've done, even the stories that I've, I've heard. You know, sometimes I think we think, oh, people in the third world countries or maybe the Middle East that they will experience dreams, but dreams, uh, but the Lord provides dreams to unreached peoples everywhere around the, the globe. And I was amazed. I think that was probably one of the most surprising things or parts of the research uh, was the presence of dreams, unexpected dreams and encounters and providential circumstances and things that were so personal and so powerful. Um, that they were they couldn't be explained any other way so and but our life changing in that way too and i mean it certainly was for you you had a sudden pivot <laughs> a sudden for years you know when you first become a christian you really are really constantly off that's off center do you know what i mean you're you're, you're searching you know you kind of know that this is wrong, but you don't really know what, you know, it's hard. The Bible's very good. I, I would recommend people read it, write, copy it or whatever. But, um, and I think, especially the New Testament or the Psalms of Proverbs, but um, because I think we read it casually or we read it like Bible studies. I honestly, I, maybe I shouldn't say this. I've never really, <laughs> I've never really taken to most Bible studies. Because it's it's like you're work, you're working on one book for a long time, and that's interesting. It's intellectually interesting, uh, but not life changing. Mm. I think when you're alone with the scripture and you're copying it or whatever, then the only your only partner in that is God. It's not other people saying, "Oh, well, when I read this, I thought." <laughs> yes, yes, I've heard it somewhat summarized like you can read for information or you can read towards transformation oh, that's and yes and so i think that's where you live you know where you like you say you're alone with god and and transformation happens in your heart and your mind when you open yourself up to the truths of scripture and you're it's just you and him and there's nowhere to hide you know so uh, 
but that that's an attitude uh, too in which you approach the the word of god so well, wow. what, what wisdom coming from you yes i just want to say one other thing about let's say i have a friend who's a skeptic or i have a friend who's like i was or whatever i we can't discount just prayer that they that people don't even know you're praying for them right right so where I had this dream, I found out later that there was a woman in the neighborhood who would go around all the time in the houses in this little block area, block and a half or something, and she would pray in front of the house. And when I got to know her later, she said, when I got to your house one day, my feet were stuck to the, con to the ground. I could not move. I prayed the prayer and I tried to leave and I couldn't leave. And then she went into, uh, I guess, tongues or something. And anyway, she had stood there. She, she didn't know how long. She thought it was probably a half an hour or more. And she was not allowed to move. She couldn't actually physically move. So then you find out all these people, like I knew, I found out students of mine had been praying for me for years, former students. So that's, that can't be ignored can't be ignored yes. extremely powerful it is and we don't know how much you know you sometimes you see somebody in a store and you just think Lord really help them. I don't know what's going on in their life but help them you know you don't know but what we do know is that God answers prayers yes yes well that's probably a fantastic way to end our conversation Thank you so, so very much for sharing not only your story, but incredible insight and wisdom with us today, Mary. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great talking to you, Jen. Great talking to you. your work. Ah, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Side B Podcast to hear Mary's story. You can find out more about her and her book on worldviews, Is Reality Secular? In the episode notes on this podcast. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me by email at thesidebpodcast at csosinstitute.org. If you enjoyed it, subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and social network. I would really appreciate it. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be listening to the other side. <laughs>